Oh, let's get it. Monday, May 2nd, 2022. Born the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to Born the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Facebook, the player instead of the blog on blogs.va.gov, however you got here. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. I am on my way back out to Washington State for my grandmother's funeral and will be back in the saddle sometime around May 11th. Going to try and get a fresh episode out after this one, but it could also be a rewind. (laughs) It, It all comes down to time and energy this weekend. Can I fit two weeks of work into one week? So I am not working on that that leave out there. Uh, we'll see. Uh, hopefully I can get you a fresh one. couple ratings, however, no new reviews. Uh, if there is in an email, if there is an email, uh, I'm sorry, I'm still catching up on all the emails from my inboxes from when I did take off from the initial family emergency. Um, I will get to them. I did get a message on LinkedIn though, on my personal LinkedIn about some confusion about the most recent benefits breakdown. Uh, the gentleman that sent it to me thought it was an episode about MST disability ratings that it was going to be uh, about MST disability ratings in the VA's schedule for rating disabilities. Uh, he felt misled in the title because we talked about the harassment and assault prevention office. Yes, two totally separate things, uh, but I do see that the office as a benefit as well, because in that episode, we did ask what benefit that office provides to veterans. What does that office do for veterans? Um, why is it there? And, and I thought Marine veteran Layla Jackson had a had very well thought out answers to those questions. If you thought it was going to be about a benefit rating based on the title, I apologize, uh, but no. Uh, I'm not usually going to do deep dives into certain disability ratings without a press release or a subject matter expert right next to me because all of that is objective and on a case-by-case basis. And I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't work at the benefits office that comes up with those policies. I am the podcast guy. Uh, sometimes I do try to get those policy folks on, and sometimes we do. Uh, but when it comes to benefits uh, and, and those ratings, they also know I'm the podcast guy as well. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's a continuing conversation sometimes uh, to get folks on. Uh, But when it comes to that title of that episode, I'm sorry if some of you were confused there. News releases, we got count them for this week. uh, Four that I think you'll be interested in. First one says for immediate release, as part of the Department of Veterans Affairs efforts to end veteran homelessness, Secretary Dennis McDonough released Master Plan 2022 on April 22nd, detailing the updated vision for a stable and supportive community for homeless and other at-risk veterans and their families at the Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System. Master Plan 2022 also maps out the progress to date at the West LA VA campus. Los Angeles has the largest homeless population in the country with almost 10% of all homeless veterans across the United States located there. Implementation of Master Plan 2022 for Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System includes ensuring all VA programs, activities, resources, and initiative prioritizes the 
prioritize the needs of veterans, striving to serve them when, where, and how they want to be served. Enabling the West LA campus to provide a variety of high quality supportive housing and a holistic set of resources tailored to the needs of vulnerable veteran populations and their families. Interconnecting campus operations in real time with off with available offsite resources, including via community-based facilities, services, state, county, city, and neighborhood systems, veteran service organizations, and nonprofit organizations, and optimizing the West LA campus as a vibrant and welcoming veterans community while honoring its legacy wherever possible through restoration of original structures and key outdoor spaces and developing new facilities, services, and amenities that are compatible with the character of the campus. Master Plan 2022 is the culmination of the latest process to update the draft master plan that was signed in 2016. As part of this initiative to date, VA has finalized a required programmatic environmental impact statement to allow development of the 388-acre West Los Angeles campus. As of fiscal 2022, secured over $75 million for utility and infrastructure capital improvements with an additional $34, almost $35 million allocated for fiscal year 2023. Open permanent supportive housing in Building 209, providing 54 units for homeless veterans. Concluded construction for a women's veterans transitional housing program. That's awesome. Competitively selected a principal developer and started construction on three additional buildings, providing a combined total of 180 permanent supportive housing units. Established two low barrier to entry program shelter initiatives, offering more than 220 spaces for veterans experiencing homelessness. Signed an easement agreement with the Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transport Authority in spring of 2021 for a new metro station. This brings regional transportation back to West LA campus for thousands of veterans and employees. Veterans and local communities provided valuable input in the process through discussion at multiple town hall meetings, as well as written public comments. The department periodically revises and updates the master plan as they should, as things do evolve, to ensure it meets the standards of care of veterans and reflects changing demand over time. VA will continue to engage the veteran community in the master plan successes and opportunities for improvement. To stay updated and learn more about the master plan 2022, go to westlamasterplan.org. There's more information in the news releases about fighting veteran homelessness in general, more links. As always, the entire news release will be at the bottom of this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. 10% of the veteran homelessness population I'm thinking we should definitely start diving in this particular part of the veteran homelessness on a future episode, maybe do a panel, something like that. I think that would be good. There's a lot of, I got a lot of questions on that. A lot of good questions. All right. The next one, if you served in Southwest Asia, if you're on the burn pit registry, which we have an episode on, this may concern you. Says for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs is adding nine rare respiratory cancers to the list of presumed service-connected disabilities due to military environmental exposures to find particulate matter. The following list of rare respiratory cancers have been added to VA's regulations through an interim final rule published in the Federal Register on April 26, 2022. Uh, it lists the nine cancers. I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce them. A lot of them have carcinoma in them, uh, but there's different times, different types of carcinoma in the lung, trachea, larynx. Uh, again, not even gonna try to try to pronounce. Like there, I'm looking at one right there that has an. It starts with an A. I, I, you know, uh, again, it's listed in the entire news release, and we'll put the news release at the bottom of this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. 
VA determined through a focused review of scientific and medical evidence that there is biological plausibility between airborne hazards and carcinogens of the respiratory tract and the unique circumstances of these rare cancers warrant a presumption of service connection. The rarity and severity of these illnesses and the reality these conditions prevent is a situation where it may not be possible to develop additional evidence, which prompted the VA to take this action. The VA will begin processing disability compensation claims for veterans who served any amount of time in the Southwest Asia Theater of Operations between August 2nd, 1990 to present, or Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Syria, or Djibouti beginning September 19th, 2001, again to, to present. Any veteran who has or had one of these listed cancers at any time during or after separation from military service may be eligible for disability compensation benefits. VA will contact impacted veterans and survivors to inform them about their eligibility and will provide them information on how to apply. Again, uh, another reason for the burn pit registry. Uh, check out that episode if you have any questions how to get on the burn pit re- registry. Veteran survivors or dependents who have had claims previously denied for any of these respiratory cancers are encouraged to file a supplemental claim for benefits. If you're a veteran, survivor, or dependent applying for the first time, file a new claim here. And in the news release, there's a link to how to file a supplemental claim page with a longer than usual URL. But again, copy of this news release will be at the bottom of this episode's blog on blogs.va.gov. Veterans and survivors can also visit va.gov or call 1-800-827-1000. That's 1-800-827-1000. All right. The third one says VA and the nonprofit carry the load. Join forces for what is called Memorial May during the month leading up to Memorial Day to honor veterans and service members interred in national cemeteries across the country. Beginning on April 28th, which has passed, volunteers organized by Carry the Load in collaboration with the Department of Veterans Affairs National Cemetery Administration will visit 50 national cemeteries during a 20,000 mile march across five separate routes covering 48 states converging on Memorial Day weekend for a final rally in Dallas, Texas. Those wishing to participate in the march are asked to register in advance at carrytheload.org. The list of national cemeteries, along with the dates and times that will be visited by Carry the Load marchers, can be found at cem.va.gov forward slash memorial hyphen may, which many of the routes have already started, but they haven't been to many of the national cemeteries yet, so you could still get in and march in the event. I did it a couple of years ago. I could tell you it was a great time. And a, and a good gathering of veterans. And it was just a really great camaraderie to walk through the National Cemetery here in D.C. Uh, highly encourage it. For those unable to attend, the National Cemetery Administration will share video and photographs of the cemetery visits on the National VA Cemetery Facebook and Twitter pages. Carry Load is a nonprofit providing active ways to connect Americans to the sacrifices of our nation's military veterans, first responders, and their families, and are a national partner with the VA. For more information about VA's participation with Carry the Load, contact your local National Cemetery or the National Cemetery Administration Chief of Public Affairs, Les Melnick, at les.melnyk at va.gov. That's his email. In the past, uh, here in the archives at Born the Battle, we interviewed both a founder of Carry the Load, Navy SEAL veteran Stephen Hawley, and two of their board members, Marine veteran Todd Boding and Army veteran Hallie Johnson. Good conversations. Uh, Really great stories. Check them out in our archives. Okay. And the last one says for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs has partnered with Health and Human Services, 41 Indian Health Service grant funded urban Indian organizations. Oh my God. Is that a beltway sentence? Is that such a government sentence? Serving eligible American Indian and Alaska Native veterans. 
The collaboration is part of a recent expansion of VA's healthcare reimbursement agreement program. And the URL for that website that expands on this agreement is a long, again, a long URL. But again, this press release will be at the bottom of this episode's blog at blogs.va.gov. Every episode of Born the Battle is there's a blog associated with it on, on blogs.va.gov on Vantage Point. Uh, you can just search for you know episode whatever and you'll find it. There's also a YouTube video on VA's YouTube that goes over the Veteran Community Care Indian Health Service Tribal slash Tribal Health Program. Urban Indian organizations provide unique access to quality health care and culturally appropriate services for American Indian and Alaska Native people living in urban areas who may not have access to Indian health service or tribal health care services because they do not live on or near a reservation that reside outside of an IHS area. To find more information on the 41 urban Indian organizations, go to ihs.gov forward slash urban forward slash urban hyphen Indian hyphen organizations. All right. This week's guest is a Navy veteran, a former pilot, a founder of the nonprofit The Mission Continues, and a board member of other nonprofits. He's also now a podcast host, and he has also been a former congressional candidate. He is Navy veteran Ken Harbaugh. Enjoy. Ken Harbaugh, you're not the uh, you're not the long lost brother of the Harbaugh <laughs> coaching tree, are you? Yeah, no, no, no relation. Certainly uh, not not with that last name as a former congressional candidate in in Ohio. You don't get away with that. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, we're, you not, did go, we're not brothers. Got you, got you. Well, you did go to Duke in the mid nineties. That that in the mid nineties, that had to be fun. That'd be a good time. That was during the whole Christian Leitner thing, wasn't it? Oh yeah, you're talking basketball. Yeah, it was great. Uh, the, the Cameron crazies were were definitely part of the um, just being a, a undergrad at Duke in in the nineties. And back in those days, to get into a game, you you had to work for it. You you camped out on the lawn for you know for like the duke unc game you'd be out there for a month in a tent in line um <laughs> until the until the doors open i think it's it's uh it's pretty well run now but it was a uh, it was chaotic in a good way uh back in my day interesting <laughs> interesting they were the they were the hated team at the time uh, uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you know coach k um He's been a guest here on Born the Battle. Yeah. Uh, he was in the Army, uh, yeah. actually coached at West Point, um, you know, before coaching at Duke. So that's in the archives. Uh, previous host interviewed him. If you get a chance, if you're listening to this, check it out. It's in our archives. Um, now, the first question we always ask Ken here on Born the Battle is, when and where did you know military service was going to be the next step in your life? Well, I grew up in a military family, uh, so there was that awareness all along. My my grandfather flew B-17s in the Pacific in World War II. My dad was a, a phantom pilot in Vietnam. And my my brother, <clears throat> my older brother went off to the academy, ended up flying F-16s. So, so you, you, know, have, you have a family of pilots. <clears throat> I have a family of pilots. Exactly. I, I decided to be the black sheep and, and join the Navy, um, which, uh, which I thought would piss my dad off. I was annoyed that he was proud of me when I told him I was going to go do it. But the, <laughs> the moment to answer your question um, came – in in kind of a a weird way because I, I I never really thought of myself going down that path. I I wasn't ROTC. I wasn't an academy. Yeah. Um, 
uh, accession, I was just a regular undergrad student. And, you know, I had this, this moment of clarity my junior year uh, in college. I was actually um, hitchhiking around uh, Australia, of all places. I was oh, studying wow. over there, got to got study abroad and realized, you know what, I hadn't really done anything to deserve the privileges I was enjoying as an American. Um, and literally the week I got back to the States, I walked into the recruiter's office and I said, um, sign me up. <laughs> How do I become a Navy pilot? And they said, well, you know, a little, little easier said than done, but we, we figured it out and did the OCS thing 13 weeks later, pinned on my, my Anson bars and went off to flight training. Got you. Got you. So, um, family of pilots, uh, yeah. it sounds like a family of fighter pilots. What, what kind of aircraft did you fly? Uh, your bio said you led classified recon missions. Yeah. So I was an EP three pilot. Okay. Uh, there, there aren't many of those. So I, I'd forgive your listeners and you, if you didn't know what I, I was talking about, <laughs> but it is nothing like the, uh, the, the, the fast, sexy planes. My dad and brother flew an EP3 as a, a big fat target. Uh, we would <laughs> fly laps in the sky, listening to the bad guys. Gotcha. Yeah. Something like an AWAC or something like that. A little bit. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, that's the power of Google. Although I'll definitely <laughs> Google it afterwards. Um, yeah. so, so while you were in, uh, give me either your best friend or your greatest mentor. Uh, great question. I had a number of people that I, I really learned a ton from uh, in in the service, and it probably started honestly at, at OCS with my my drill instructor uh, sure. back back in that day. Uh, going through aviation officer candidate school, they gave you Marine Corps drill instructors, and that was my my first really? experience. Oh yeah, yeah, they did rifle drill and all that. I think it has changed quite a bit since then. Um, but I think there was real value to that, to exposing you know these these soon to be naval officers to the cream of the crop um, of the the Marine Corps, and we had a senior chief uh, as well, and. You know, those lessons stuck with me. And the, the one thing I, the one bit of advice I remember most clearly leaving OCS, um, and it was from my Marine DI actually, was listen to your chiefs. You know, <laughs> gotcha. this yeah. idea that you may think you're, you're hot stuff heading off to, to pilot training. Um, you got one of those coveted slots, but you really don't know very much. Listen to your chiefs. And I tried to do that my my entire time in the service. Interesting uh, that you said, I didn't know that. So officer and a gentleman with Louis Gossett Jr., Marine drill instructor, that was yeah. actually a thing back then. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, Ken, you served for nine years. Uh, what made you decide to get out? What made you decide to go, you know what? Uh, it's time. Yeah. You know, it was a tough decision. Um, at that point, the toughest professional decision of my of my life because it was 2005 right we're in the middle yeah. of not one war but two and leaving in the middle of wartime is tough um yeah. i i try to describe that to civilians and a lot of them don't understand it but i think you will yeah um, and i absolutely. imagine a lot of people listening will um but i had a two-week-old little girl and was looking at um a transfer duty station, which would likely mean a dis disassociated sea tour. And I thought, man, I just, I, it's going to take a better man than I to, to leave this kid and go do that. And there certainly were better men and women than me who stayed in and, and, uh, shouldered that burden for the rest of us. 
but I got out to go back to school uh, and to to be a dad, um, and it was it was really tough. I remember my first semester um, back at I went to law school, um, and uh, there was a <clears throat> a cemetery, a pretty old cemetery across the street, but you know there was a new uh, a new grave in it from a soldier who died in Iraq. And I would just sometimes walk by it and, and ponder it and the sacrifice that, that other people were having to make so that I, so that I wouldn't have to, so that I could live the life I was living. And I was just incredibly grateful for that and still am. Yeah. It's, it's funny how you, you look at something like that and you go, you know, why him and not me? And you, you have those kind of feelings. I think a lot of us do go through that. Um, but, and you said it takes better men, but Hey, it's, it's, it takes a man to be a dad too. And understand that, understand that too. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to, to process those, those emotions and feelings. Um, how were you able to, to process that yourself? <laughs> not well, honestly. <laughs> um, and, and I, I'm the first to admit that I had it easy. Like I had a supportive family. I actually had a career path ahead of me, but you go from nine years in the Navy. And one of the neat things about the EP three is you're, you're, you're out there, you know, you're, you're flying actual real world missions. Um, You matter and you become a student. And, And especially at a place like I was at Yale law school, especially at a place like Yale law, where there are very few veterans at the time, ROTC wasn't allowed on campus. So there were no uniforms on campus either. Um, In my entire class, there was only one other veteran, my entire class, there was maybe one professor out of several hundred who had a military background. Wow. Um, And, you know, that makes the, the adjustment uh, emotionally a little fraught. I remember sitting in a coffee shop across the street from the law school and, uh, you know, it was a bustling coffee shop and I was probably into a, a constitutional law text or something. And, and these half ton trucks roll by <clears throat> probably from the armory, uh, up North and a kid sitting at the table next to me said loud enough for everyone to hear. Cause he was trying to be funny. He said, what is there a war on? And this was, um, this would have been Oh five, right? Like yeah. I said, there wasn't just one war on, there were two and something in me snapped. I remember standing up, I knocked my drink over. I, I was walking towards this kid to, to give him a piece of my, a piece of my mind. And I realized, you know, it's not his fault. Like we have created these bubbles. We have asked a vanishingly small percentage of the population uh, to shoulder this burden. Yeah. And no wonder that this, this ivory tower is is sheltering people from the realities of war, or even the fact that there there are two wars ongoing right now. Yeah. Um, and my response to to that realization um, was to uh, I found myself almost in a in a daze driving down to Bethesda Naval Hospital because uh, you know I just wanted to be around um, brothers and sisters who would who had borne the battle. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that itself is an interesting story and, and led to, you know, uh, an amazing journey as well. But, um, to answer your question, yeah, I had, I had to figure out how to cope with that transition. 
did that trip down to Bethesda help you with that, with that coping during that transition? What, what yeah. was that all? About? I mean, it, it did. And it, it led to, um, well, I'll just tell you the story. I, yeah. I, I got down there, you know, I worked with the PAO to make sure I just wasn't showing up on the doorstep. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to go meet with some of the Marines. Uh, you know, that's where all the, the wounded Marines were going back in yeah. 05 and, yeah. and, and around then. And my idea driving down there was that I was going to show up and I was going to provide them like some company and some comfort. And yeah, I was going to go in and, and be that for them. And in reality, exactly the opposite happened. They provided me with such inspiration. I remember one young, very young Marine, um, about to go into his 10th reconstructive surgery. And, uh, and he grabbed my hand and he said, sir, um, I lost my legs, but that's it. I didn't lose my desire to serve or my pride in being an American. And that kind of thing sticks with you, especially when it's coming from a triple amputee, right? Yeah. Um, he also shared with me that his only real regret, <laughs> well, yeah, he had two regrets from stepping on that mine. One is that he couldn't have shielded his buddies from more of the blast. I mean, imagine that. And two was that he lost a $300 tattoo. Um, and just that, you know, that sense of resilience and humor and desire to continue serving was the, the moral foundation of the mission continues, which was a nonprofit that I co-founded around that time to help these, these vets continue to, to give back because they want to. Absolutely. Now you, you talk about, um, those bubbles with that Yale Mm -hmm. student, um, General Mattis wrote, you know, about 10 years ago to crossing the, the military civilian divide. Um, and, and you, you talk about interacting with that bubble, interacting with that divide. Um, what do you think is the best way to cross that bridge even 10 years later, even now? Because you got you got a lot of veterans in society now uh, from OAF and OEF, yeah. uh, Vietnam veterans still. Uh, what do you think is the best way to cross that divide with, with those people that, you know, may not know what it is to be a veteran, what it is to serve? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, and I think the first thing we got to acknowledge is that the responsibility goes both ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's incumbent upon <clears throat> the society that that asks its military to to bear these burdens, to understand them. Um, I, I actually am not one of those vets who who gets all upset with the thank you for your service meme, right? That's a start. That's great. Um, and that question has to be followed up with, tell me a little bit about it. Exactly. Tell me about your buddies if you're comfortable doing that. And on the part of the veterans on the receiving end, there has to be an openness to, to talk about it, to share, to be a little patient, to understand that, that most people are asking, um, or thanking, uh, us for our service out of, out of a place of, um, good intentions. Right? Absolutely, and so that conversation has to has to flow both ways. Now, you got out in two thousand five, uh, like like you said, uh, really early for both OEF and OF veterans. Uh, I got out ten years later uh, personally, and, and I saw tons of support from the like nonprofits that you mentioned. Um, I saw a ton of changes within the VA support, even since two thousand fifteen. Um, for you, what was out there in two thousand five when you got out? Not a whole lot. And no. I, I, I want to be clear again, I was one of the lucky ones. Like I, I, I'm not here saying that I didn't get the support I needed. Um, 
Like no, you went to Bethesda. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but I learned a lot about what was out there for others and what wasn't. And just a little vignette, TAP, the Transition Assistance um, Program. I think that's what it's, the, the, TAP the acronym TAPS. stands for itself, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's how the military prepares you to, to get out and become a civilian. It was like two days yeah. um, and with absolutely no pre-work. And you go from full-on military uh, lifestyle um, with, you know, three square a day. Like, you know what it's like in the military. Yep. The two days later, later being cut loose. Um, and I, I had something to go to. But I, I know that so many people going through at the time felt pretty lost. Um, and, and there just wasn't a whole lot um, beyond tap to receive those coming out, especially those with, uh, with mental health issues. Uh, we've mm-hmm. done a hell of a lot since then. I mean, I think the first huge win was the, uh, the Clay Hunt um, Suicide Prevention Act, uh, which allowed service members to get help if they needed it wherever it was available, basically. Um, and that was named after, you know, one of the original Team Rubicon members who tragically took his life in part because those services weren't available. Yeah. So we learned the hard way, right? And we have yeah. come a long, long way since then. Still not perfect. No. But I think hats off to the VA. And I know this is a, a VA podcast, so I'm not yeah. just blowing sunshine, but um, a lot of good stuff has happened. Well, I, and, and I don't think it'll ever be perfect, especially with a with a bureaucracy of 400,000 you know, the size of 400,000 people. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing um, what one person can do to affect the perception of a body of 400,000 people. Um, but I also think, like you said, it's, it's never going to be perfect, but there, you need to have that relentless pursuit of perfection in order yeah. to be successful. Um, now, looking at your bio, there was a little bit of a gap between you getting out and your time as executive director for the mission continues. What was what was Ken Harbaugh doing? That for- that was Ken Harbaugh's the dad <laughs> and ah, the law student, ah, right? Got you. Got you. Um, I mean, I, I, I did spend a little time in Afghanistan in that gap as a human rights uh, researcher. Uh, that was that was an experience. But interesting. Was, talk to me about not, that. Not in uniform. Yeah, talk to me about I'm, that. I mean, at the time there was this naivete about Afghanistan, right? That we were. Um, providing this transitional buffer and, and that, you know, we could help the country um, emerge into the 21st century and, uh, and, and this whole notion of exporting Jeffersonian democracy, I, I think, is in hindsight just clearly uh, ridiculous. Well, how many times and, have we tried it? Yeah. And, and, and how right. many times it, it, and you, you, gotta, you do have to pay attention to the culture that you are. Yeah. Talking to to try to convince them. And yeah, we can we can talk a lot about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you the summary of of, of my contribution to that. There Absolutely, was, uh, an an effort to create a a system of transitional justice, as other post conflict societies have have um, experienced. You know, you go from civil war or a high level of conflict to the post conflict. Um, era, and you need to account for the crimes that happened. I think the miss in the case of Afghanistan was thinking that it was a post-conflict society. Uh, sure, we rolled in, and and initially things went pretty well, 
but Afghanistan is still uh, not a post-conflict society. Um, no. And uh, anyone who's been outside of Kabul, and I spent most of my time um, with just a driver and interpreter outside of Kabul, um, understands just how uh, how tough that that situation is. And, um, you know, boy, did, did we, did we let a lot of people down there? Um, I think, I think you could talk to the Marine on the ground and they would tell you the same thing. Matter of fact, yeah. uh, again, a bunch of, a bunch of them did. That was one of the last things that we did in 2021 on this podcast was talk about the withdrawal and, and every veteran that was in that panel was like, yeah, you could see this coming from 10 miles away. Yeah. Um, so again, if you get it, get a chance, uh, check that one out in the archives. Um, now you've been in a lot of leadership roles for a lot of nonprofits. The mission continues. Like you said, that you helped founded service nation president and CEO for team Rubicon COO uh, for team Rubicon. Yeah. Uh, it looks like during the time that Jake founder, that the founder Jake Wood was, uh, was focusing his attention on other things. Uh, we also did, did an interview with Jake. Uh, it, it, that's, that's in the archives as well. Um, Ken, what continued you what continued to draw you to these opportunities with these nonprofits? I think the same thing that that animates these nonprofits, and, and it's that that desire to serve. And yeah. we we realized this at Team Rubicon a couple of years after the founding that we weren't really a veteran service organization. We were a disaster relief organization that happened to tap into the best talent out there, veterans who want to continue serving. Yes. And I, you know, it makes me think about the composition of our armed forces. We have an all volunteer force, right? We have for a long time. And the people who join, by and large, do it because they they want to serve. They want to be part of something bigger. I mean, there there are myriad reasons, but um, that desire to serve doesn't go away when you take off the uniform. Yeah. Um, it, in fact, I think in some ways it becomes hardwired into your DNA. It becomes reinforced when you serve. Uh, you look at reenlistment rates, and a lot of folks who join for, for one reason, end up realizing, you know what, Hey, I'm, I matter here. Um, and I want to help. And even when you take off the uniform, that desire remains. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's what has, has kept me going. Um, that, that desire to, to be part of something bigger, to, to serve, to build something lasting. Um, and I, you know, I, I think we, it is our greatest strength as a country and we got to find ways to leverage it, to tap into it, to give veterans that opportunity to continue serving in absolutely. a positive way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, I also saw about that about 10 years ago, you were a consultant for McKinsey and company. You know, I see that company and a lot of background for those that run for public office. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what does that company actually do? And why are there so many people that leave that office or that leave that company run for public office? Well, I'll tell you what I did there. I mean, it's a massive sure. company. It's like, you know, um, well, I can't think of a good example, but you know, it's a consultant See what I mean? company. I'm just so saying. They have their, they have their hand in, in millions of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes not always pure, but I think uh, with a company that big, you're going to have hits and misses. Um, my, I think most, rewarding engagement. That's kind of what they call 
a deployment, for lack of a better term, at McKinsey. You know, you go off and spend some time with the company and help them with a the problem. Yeah. Uh, and they sent me up to a mine in the wastes of uh, of Canada, uh, a mile underground, because they needed someone who could uh, essentially translate for the miners and talk to the front office, um, and 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 help like the suits understand what was actually going on with downtime in the mine shaft. And that was a, you know, really cool problem. I mean, you go from being a, a naval aviator, then law student to, to working in a mine. But at the end of the day, it's all about people, right? Um, and if, if you can make your work about helping people, it, it's always rewarding. And, and that was, you know, an incredibly rewarding um, business engagement. I mean, that was about dollars and cents. I was, um, yeah. you know, had a, quite a bit of, of law school debt and a sick kid at the time who needed a couple of surgeries. And so that was mm. a financial decision. Yeah. But having found that, uh, that line of work within McKinsey, it, it became pretty rewarding um, by itself. Um, Sounds yeah. like another place to serve too. Like you're, you're helping Felt the like miners. Yeah. 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 That's good. That's good. Um, you then ran for, you then ran for Congress for, uh, Ohio. Um, you know, we don't normally do like being a government podcast. I know. You know we normally <laughs> don't go down that road, but it was at a time that a lot of veterans were running for public office on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Why do you think it's important for veterans to be run and get involved? Well, I would argue we still don't have enough. I mean, we are historic lows in terms of veteran representation in, in Congress. Um, and part of it is that veterans bring a certain sensibility, a certain uh, ability to work across the aisle, to yes. work together and, and put the mission first. Um, part of it is that they have skin in the game, right? Every member of Congress swears an oath to the Constitution. But not all of them. In fact, these days, not many of them have actually put their lives on the line for that oath. I still um, place a lot of faith in the veterans uh, who are, are running to continue to, to uphold their oaths to hopefully restore some sanity and to be able to, to bridge some of these divides and uh, reaffirm the American public's faith in the strength of, of our democracy and the yeah. validity of our elections. Well, I think, I think when you talk about the insanity of politics nowadays, um, I, I think you're right in the fact that veterans can, can kind of break through on both sides of that and, and go across the aisle and, and actually, you know, have some kind of respect for difference of opinion, respect, respect for the person that is across the aisle and come to some sort of middle ground. I think, you know, in the military, you have to do that all the time to work, be able to work as a team. That's one thing I think veterans on, on, in politics would, would probably get, um, you know, I think back to the greatest generation, even if they were opponents or in separate parties, there was, there was always a mutual respect there. Um, you know, even recently I go back to seeing Bob Dole at George Bush's seniors, uh, funeral, you know, they, they were in the same party, but they were opponents in, in some things, but seeing what Bob Dole did to, to respect the honor to get up, push his assistant out of the way and salute, what was once an opponent of his, I think that's what's missing in, in sometimes in today's climate. Oh, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's become just, just sickening. For veterans that want to get into politics, that want to run for a delegate seat or a congressional seat or even a Senate seat and, and say they, you know, cause they're like, Hey, I got ideas. I got, I got ways I want to make, I want to make change. 
where should they start to build to get to the point where like, I want to, okay, I can run for Congress. New politics. Look up new politics on Google. It is far and away um, the best organization out there that can uh, run you through the traps. Uh, and they have successfully, they're bipartisan. So they help Republicans and Democrats, which we need more of. Sure. Um, and you look at their their list of successful candidates, it's a lot of names that, that that you know, that you've heard of, that hopefully you respect as veterans who are serving in Congress, in state legislatures, even in city halls and on school boards. Because um, it's, it's a tough process and you have to give up a lot uh, to serve your country in this way. But newpolitics.org helps you figure that out. Now, after your congressional run, run, what made you turn to media? Uh, you've hosted a number of podcasts. Um, now, these have been in podcast networks. Uh, Reclaiming Patriotism was with, was with Crooked Media. Yeah. Funny name, by the way. Uh, while Medal of Honor and your current podcast, uh, Burn the Boats, is with Evergreen Podcast. Um, how did these partnerships form? I got an offer. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't freelance. I, um, you know, got asked to to come to come do this. And one thing has led to another. So I've been really, really lucky. Gotcha. Yeah. I've always wondered how do those deals come about? Because, you know, I'm a, go- I'm a government employee mm-hmm. and that just happens to run a podcast for the government. I get paid, I get paid by the government. Um, but I've, I, so I've never been, you know, traditionally paid in this industry and I'm not, I'm not your, t- I'm pretty sure I'm not your typical podcast revenue model. Um, what are the economics behind say being part of a podcast network? Um, I don't run the business side and I'm glad that I don't, <laughs> but it's still largely a, an ad driven model, right? I mean, yeah. this is the boring stuff, but sure. Uh, but, most but podcasts, there, might, there might be a veteran out there wanting sure. to start a podcast. And, you know, you reach know. out to me. Uh, yeah. You can find the evergreen contacts info, contact info on the page. Yeah. Um, the, the revenue model is, is basically uh, ad driven. I think, you know, there are other Patreon and subscription models. Um, and the reality is that the vast majority of podcasts make no money or, exactly, or lose yeah. money. Yeah. They are passion projects, which is fine. It's great. You know, it's, it's free content. It's people doing what they, what they love and getting their voice uh, out there in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a few of them get lucky. Exactly. And I think you, like you said, you got to have a, a definite passion to do this because it takes a lot of consistency. It takes a lot of, um, effort to get a podcast off the ground. It's like writing a book almost. Um, I say all that because in today's saturated podcast market, you really need an audience to start from like a, a podcast network or, or an established audience with that has an established audience or, or the VA that has a huge social media presence or a personality that might be established in social media. Um, I think the days of, you know, Joe Rogan, if you build it, they will, they will come are kind of over. Do you agree to that? Well, there's just too much out there. There's yeah. too much noise yeah. and the algorithm decides these days. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it depends on the algorithm. But you know yeah. what? I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with a podcast that has a few thousand devoted listeners. Absolutely not. Um, I mean, I, I'm thinking about my my days on the campaign trail. If I had a few thousand people show up every week to hear me um <laughs> you know, to hear me spout off, that'd be a win, right? Even for, for Senate <laughs> candidates, that's a win. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the thought of having, you know, multiples of that every week uh, listening to you and, and, you know, my format for Burn the Boats is is an interview format. So it's not just 
it's not just me yeah. loving the sound of my own voice. We we have interesting conversations, but I'm I'm honored every time that people would uh, would tune in to the conversations uh, that we're having. Oh, absolutely. I think I think there's nothing wrong with having us dedicated uh, base of an audience to, to understand what you're listening. And what's it feel like being? I mean, it's got to be nice to be on the other side of the the podcast, Mike. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like not having to prepare. Um, absolutely. So thank you for that. No, thank absolutely. you for that. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, another way to get your podcast noticed is, is through industry awards. Uh, I saw that Burn the Bush was nominated for an Ambi. Congrats on congratulations on that. Uh, we were not we, born. The battle was nominated last year, but when I looked at December submission dates, I was about I was about a week late to submit this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see another veteran podcast, you know, Very veteran cool. hosted podcast, get nominated. Um, you're also a principal in Acme General Corporations. It sounds like something out of Warner Brothers. You know, um, <laughs> are they a defense or government contractor? And, and besides anvils, what is yeah? In, in cartoons, what are they known for? Um, so it is a, a defense contractor and, and we help a, a select suite of clients with, uh, with innovation problems, uh, okay. defense related innovation problems. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, Ken, has there been a veteran whom you've known, uh, or a veteran nonprofit that maybe you haven't mentioned within the veteran community that you'd like to you know, someone you've had an experience with that you'd like to mention? Yeah, I'm going to embarrass the heck out of him here, but I Good. mentioned him once. Mike Washington, uh, one of my all-time heroes. I have, uh, I've dragged him onto my, my shows uh, a few times, but here is a guy who is, um, I mean, he has uh, acquired his wisdom about life in the hardest way imaginable. Um, Master Sergeant in the in the Marine Corps, um, and his own son Mike Jr. Um, decided to follow in his dad's footsteps, um, and uh, and was killed in 08. And uh, for, I, I mean, as a dad myself, I can't even imagine the pain that that causes. And and Mike's very open about it now. It nearly ended his own life, and he found himself on a bridge. Um, I think in Tacoma might have been Seattle, but he oh, was wow. getting ready to jump off. Right. Yeah. Um, I think a few of us have have been there, or at least contemplated it, thinking about our our buddies. Um, but he was thinking about his son, right? Yeah. And he felt he felt uh, Mike Junior's hand on his shoulder, like his physical presence, and and his son was saying to him, "You're not done yet, Dad." <clears throat> and so Mike read Mike Senior. Top Washington, right? As a master sergeant, so we all call him Top. Um, from that moment on, rededicated himself to helping uh, fellow vets and first responders. He's a he became a firefighter after leaving the Corps, and is now a therapist, um, focusing on mental health issues among firefighters and and first responders, um, and is literally a lifesaver. Um, wow. I mean, he he was a warrior for the first half of his career um, and a firefighter and is now, now saving people's lives in another way. Interesting. Is he still very good? Is he still up in Washington state? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll make the intro. You should have him on. It's incredible. That's uh that's my neck of the woods. So um, probably got a lot of, a lot of similar things to talk about. Go, you know, go Hawks and all that stuff. Um, (laughs) Ken, what is one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today? I'm going to circle back maybe to something we've um, we've been talking about, which is, is that patriotism takes many forms. I joined, and you started with this question, but I joined by channeling a certain kind of patriotism, the patriotism of 
um, this is a charged word. I hope it doesn't set people off, but the, the patriotism of the privileged, right? I joined because I was grateful for all my country had done for me. There are so many people I ran into in the military and since then who joined because they wanted their country to live up to its promises. They had been let down, right? And they realized all that America can and should be. Uh, and so they were fighting for for different reasons, but reasons no less patriotic. And I see that today in so many ways with people fighting for their country, um, trying to make their country better. Um, and my time in the military opened my eyes to the fact that there are so many ways to love your country. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Ken, is there anything that, that I've missed or haven't asked or is there a parting shot, you know, think about who's listening to this, uh, that you'd like to share? Just a call to action. Your time serving your country doesn't end just because you take off the uniform. Our country needs us now more than ever. Uh, we've got to set the example for, uh, for our neighbors, um, for our, our family members, for our, even our buddies in uniform, um, that that oath of office doesn't expire. And there are a million ways to do it. Sign up for Team Rubicon, help your neighbors out on a disaster relief mission. Uh, sign up to be a poll worker, right? To, to, help, um, to help people vote instead of keep them from voting. I mean, there are so many ways that our country needs our, our skill and our commitment and our, our patriotism today. Don't sit on the sidelines. Absolutely. Um, well, that's a good, I think that's a good place to, to end. Ken, thank you for your time. Appreciate you. And we're out. Great. Great having, uh, great being on the show. Thanks, man. Ever hear the one about the frog? Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. Here's my resume. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up and that frog will boil. It's a lie. But as a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, any real world experience. it's a story that rings true. We make excuses for how we feel. We push everything down. We tell ourselves the lie that it's easier to stay in that boiling water, to disconnect. And some days, maybe, it is. But you've never been interested in easy. Reaching out is hard. Do it anyway. You're not alone. You've got this. You are not a frog. Find resources at va.gov reach. I want to thank Ken for coming on Born the Battle. To learn more about Ken, you can put his name in the Google machine and You'll find a lot out there in the form of publications, uh, podcasts, and a lot of other things. This week's Born the Battle of Veteran of the Week is by way of VA's Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our social media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by emailing in a bio and about five pictures to newmedia at va.gov. Now, this one in particular was sent in by Carrie the Load. Thomas Farrell Allison was born in Parkland, Washington in October 1979. 
In grade school, Allison enjoyed playing war and otherwise messing around at church camp. He graduated from Washington High School, then joined the Army. Christian faith was a central part of Allison's life. His family reported that when concerned for his safety in the service, he would attempt to reassure them by saying, he would attempt to reassure them by saying, some of us will get to heaven first. Allison was assigned to Company E of the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. This unit is based in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and is called the Night Stalkers. They're an elite team named for their specialty in transporting combat troops by helicopter undercover at night. It played a crucial role in Operation Enduring Freedom and as a part of a larger 660-member American force tasked with training soldiers in the Philippines to fight extremist guerrillas. A total of 10 service members, including Allison, two Air Force pararescuers, and seven other helicopter crew members were on a mission to scout rebels on Bazelon Island when their Chinook helicopter erupted in a fireball for unknown reasons. It plummeted into the Barhole Sea, killing all on board, and the aftermath of the crash, which took place on February 22, 2002, only three bodies were recovered, and none of the three were Allison. His family received an oak chest with his ribbons and medals pinned along a velvet lining. Those awards include a Legion of Merit, an Air Medal, an Army Service Ribbon, a Basic Aviation Badge, a Parachutist Badge, and an Air Assault Badge. Memorial service took place for Allison at Tahoma National Cemetery in Kent, Washington, where a gravestone currently stands in his honor. Army veteran Thomas Farrell Allison. We honor his service. Ready. Hey. Five. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to me at podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. If you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKeelhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Sieber, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gunner. Firefight bullets fly to my brain. Simplified till we're done another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. made bullet in my back Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner
Let's fly the night rain. Simplify, do or die, another campaign. Here we go, lock and load, oh, 331. Lug a thousand rounds, and I ain't bringing back one. So I was uh, president of Team Rubicon Global at this time and uh, wanted to drop in on one of our operations running a, a medical clinic for uh, Syrian and Iraqi refugees. Uh, this was probably 2015. So tough time for uh, for Syria and Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. You said you got out in a, a 15, right? So mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> um, anyway, you know, when I, when I deployed with Team Rubicon, I always did it to work, uh, but I also had my, my leadership hat on. Anyway, I show up <clears throat> at this, um, at this clinic in, in the middle of the night, uh, with my, with my med kit on my back and, uh, and, and all my, my stuff, and the <laughs> the manager of the clinic meets me, has no idea who I am, which I really appreciated. Like this guy's all business. His name is Tom Smith, and that's important later. I'll tell you why. Okay. But Tom Smith meets me at the at the door of the the place where we're billeting, and he says, "Hey Harbaugh, you got four hours to sleep. We start at dawn." Sorry, all the bunks are full. You're sleeping at the floor. You're sleeping on the floor, uh, and don't feed the feral cats. Um, I'm like, okay, man. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I get a couple hours of sleep. Um, I don't know what happened overnight, but you know, morning comes and Tom realizes, like, I'm, oh shit, this guy's president of Team Rubicon Global. Um, but Tom and I became fast friends uh, and are to this day. He ended up being my my field director on my campaign. Um, and, you know, another example of people who just inspire you with, with how they live. Tom was a, uh, Air Force PJ. Uh, so a combat medic, right. Um, and repurposed those skills for team Rubicon and is now one of those vets. Um, you know, to me, that's, that's an example of like putting the mission first, dispensing with, uh, the all the ceremony that comes with with rank or position or title, and just putting the mission first and putting people first, and and uh, and getting the job done. 